0: Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Imagine a large southern European country with an accessible language, amazing scenery, vineyards, fascinating history, lengthy coastline. Where is this place? I'm talking about Romania, the most beautiful and misunderstood country in all of Europe. Now that description is actually the words of Paul Kenyon, who's joining me today. Paul is a journalist who's written a book about Romania called Children of the Night, has lived there over many years and is also married to a Romanian and his book has just come out. Paul, welcome to the bunker.
1: Hi, good to to see you uh, and good to hear from you. And just briefly, by the way, I haven't really lived there but I've been going backwards and forwards there for the last 20-odd years so I feel like I've lived there.
0: Paul, let's just start very briefly with your own story. What took you to Romania in the first place and sort of started your connection with the country?
1: Uh, well, I was a cub reporter at the BBC, and um, I got my first foreign gig, which they said, hey, do you want to go to Romania? And um, you're going to make a, a half-hour documentary. It was about people going there, Westerners going there just after the revolution. So in the early 90s, the revolution, of course, was in 89, but this was in the early 90s. And people were going there, Westerners, and they were buying babies. Uh, there was a, a thriving black market for the sale of babies, because you'll remember Romania, there were lots of scenes on the television at the time of Romanian orphans on the streets. And there were lots of political reasons why there were orphans on the streets. But Westerners decided they could go out there, buy a a baby for a couple of hundred dollars and bring them home and formally adopt them. And that's what was happening. So I went out to cover that. The most important uh, moment really of that two week filming session was that we were going to go meet the British ambassador in this beautiful, ornate, kind of old, crumbling palace in the centre of Bucharest. And um, I went in there, and I, I mean, it was fantastic. It was so atmospheric, and there were Ottoman-style music, and there were uh, Turkish cigarettes everywhere, and there was fruit, and there were sort of sherbet-coloured lights, and it was so beautiful. And at the bottom of the, of the lawn, I saw this very pretty young woman, and I said to my cameraman, see that woman over there, I'm going to marry her. And he said, No, don't be ridiculous. She's, she's, she's one of the Romanians. So I said, Yeah, but Oh, she looks so great. And I went down there. I mean, it sounds crazy. But that was the woman that I ended up marrying two years later, I never interviewed the British ambassador to Romania that evening, but I met my future wife. So that's how I came to have my link with Romania.
0: Your book is subtitled The Strange and Epic History from sort of babies for sale to the way you met your wife. It, Romania seems to always create these these amazing stories. I suppose uh, if we're going to start the history of Romania, inevitably, we have to talk about Dracula. So Dracula was a real person and a a sort of medieval prince of Romania. Can you tell us a bit about him and his significance to this country?
1: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? We all associate Romania with um, either orphans or Dracula. When I say to people, you know, he, he did exist. He's in Romania. He's taken very seriously as a very respectable former prince of the country. He was called Vlad III Dracula, uh, and his father was Vlad II Dracul, without the A on the end. I'll tell you, first of all, his father was the one that, that was given the title Dracul. And Dracul was actually something, it was a title that was awarded to him. He was invited into something, a chivalrous order called the Order of the Dragon, uh, in the 1400s. And, um, this was a very respectable position to be in. It was, um, it meant that you were a great Christian crusader. Um, so it was a mark of respect to be called Dracul, a member of the Order of the Dragon. So when he died, he passed the title down to his son. And because the diminutive has an A on the end, it became Dracula. So Vlad III Dracula became the ruler of This is old Romania. Before it was called Romania, it was called Wallachia. So he was Prince of Wallachia. And he was a brilliant military tactician. He was um, fantastically clever. He spoke several languages uh, fluently. Apart from the fact that he used to put timber stakes in people's behinds and uh, parade them outside his palace, he was a pretty good ruler. But he was of course, utterly ruthless. That was the man. And um, it was interesting, apart from the fact that he was a brilliant tactician, he was also very morally pure. He was a great Christian. He was, like I said, a crusader. He fought against the Ottomans. But there was a kind of almost darkly comical side. He was quite a sensitive guy. He was always worried about what uh, Wallachians were really thinking about their ruler. So he used to put on disguises, and he used to go around villages and knock on doors and say, um, hi. So um, I'm a stranger around here. What, what do you think about old Dracula? Is he, is he ruling okay? And people would say, uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's pretty good. And nobody would dare say anything because even then there was this kind of malevolent spirit about him just in case it was one of Dracula's spies. And yeah, he used to go and knock on people's doors and also offer them marital advice. He used to turn up in disguise and say, I'm going to run the courtrooms for the day. If anybody's found guilty, they will take the wrath Uh, which they deserve. And they'll get very serious sentences. And it was Dracula all along. So all I'm saying is he was a man of of, of many talents and uh, of many great anecdotes and stories. And he's seen as a hero in Romania today.
0: And we're jumping around a little, but when Bram Stoker wrote his book, what was he drawing on uh, from that story to create that sort of supernatural gothic horror?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question that. Dracula, as in Vlad Dracula, the real Dracula, had really vanished off the scene. He wasn't written about much in the history books. He was just a very sort of a former great nationalist military leader. But it was, um, Bram Stoker was leafing through a book about Wallachia and about superstition and folklore. And it was a phenomenally uh, superstitious place and still is. And he was reading about things like how they believed in the undead and how people in Transylvania and Wallachia, which were two separate entities at the time, they were never quite sure that their relatives had definitely died in the graveyard. So sometimes they used to dig them up. And the rumor went around that the only way to deal with the undead in these territories was to um, put a stake through their heart. So this was happening at the end of the 1800s. And travelers and adventurers who went to Wallachia and Transylvania would say they'd seen this kind of thing, people pulling corpses out of the ground and putting stakes through their hearts and protecting themselves with garlic and all this kind of superstition. Bram Stoker read about this. He was intrigued and he wanted to write a kind of book about demons and about um, the devil and devilish practices. When he was reading about it, he looked in a, a history book about Wallachia and saw the word Dracula and thought that has got to be the name of my lead character. It's just so its just so exotic and it's so devilish. So he adopted that name for his book. Coming into
0: the 20th century, uh, Romania does the thing that seems to be a tradition in, in sort of early 20th century Europe is that they borrowed a prince from Germany to make him their king and that was yes. uh, Carol I. So he, <laughs> he, he established the sort of the monarchy of Romania. And he kind of shepherded the country through those difficult years at the start of World War I.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was an all-round good egg, actually. He was uh, a very dutiful, quite, um, uh, and, and even though he was obviously, he was German-born, as you say, he learnt Romanian. He was very strongly representative of Romania at the end. But, of course, the problem was uh, that as they approached the First World War, Romania, because of its position right in the centre of Europe, as you say, was always going to have to choose sides. This has always been its problem. It can try and remain neutral for as long as possible, but neutrality does tend to wind up your neighbours. So in the First World War, we have King the I, born in Germany, who um, really, he knew all his people wanted to be on the side of Britain. He knew that. But his problem was that if he declared against Germany in the First World War, what would happen? He'd be fighting against his own relatives, his own in-laws, who were all there in Germany. Saying, "Are you kidding me? You're going to join the Brits?" So he had this real difficulty. And what Term um, Carol did was he delayed and delayed and delayed and, and remained neutral. But as I say, you know that thing about neutrality. Romania can never really remain neutral. Eventually, it's got so many foes on all its borders. It's going to have to call for one side or the other. And eventually, it called and it called against Germany and it joined the Entente. So it joined Britain, France. And Russia. At that point, there was a great difficulty. So, in the First World War, the Germans come storming into Romania, and they take most of the country. Most of Romania is occupied. But yeah, King Carol the First, fascinating character, dour, slightly moody, difficult, but you know, good and loyal to Romania. Unlike some of the people who followed in his wake. In
0: contrast to Carol I, an upstanding slightly Germanic figure, a later king, Carol II, turned out to be a much more complex character who struggled with the growing fascist movements in Romania, didn't he?
1: When you speak to Romanians today about this, they know very very little, because actually, if you think about it, their history goes back to communism, and they know, I'm afraid, very little from before that. But Romania was very nationalistic, very patriotic, and it grew a number of different fascist movements. And the most celebrated of those started off quite small. It was called the Legion of the Archangel Michael. And um, it became, it turned into the Iron Guard. And it was led by a guy called Cornelio Codrianu, which, you know, most of us won't have heard of. But he at the time was a, a kind of rock star. He was a mystic. He looked a bit like Hugh Grant, rather oddly. Uh, My wife always says, don't say that. That makes him look far too good. But he was celebrated for his looks and his wisdom, even though he didn't say a lot. And he was this kind of folklorish character. So even though he was a, a fascist, he was celebrated because he was seen as the essence of Romania. He was so patriotic that he used to walk around all the time with a little sack of Romania's earth a little sack of soil around his neck and a kind of pendant. And all his followers used to do the same. And they used to say, this is the blood-soaked earth of Romania. This is what all our ancestors have been through to try and protect our land, one little bit of blood-soaked earth. And that thing, See, so you goes back to Dracula, the whole thing about the blood of Romanians being in the soil, this kind of back-to-nature stuff. So he set up the Legion of the Archangel Michael, which became the Iron Guard. And of course, there's lots of things that you would look at and say, God, I mean, it sounds quite alluring. And of course, it was. He championed yoga. He got people to do yoga in the morning, they would all grow communal tomatoes, and they would all rear cattle together. And it was all actually quite, the whole thing was quite communal, almost communist in that sense. But of course, the other side of it was the ferocious anti-Semitism. And he, on all his followers, believed that all Jews were communists, and all communists were Jews, and they needed to be expelled from the country. And they needed, I'm afraid, in the end, uh, if they weren't expelled from the country, they needed to be exterminated in any way possible. And the Iron Guard became phenomenally popular, as we know.
0: And through the 1930s, you have Carol II, as we've mentioned, the son of the, the rather kind of upstanding first king of Romania, struggling really to sort of control or manage these fascist movements. The other factor that seems important here is the fact that Romania had oil, which I think lots of people forget. So, of course, it was of great interest, particularly to Hitler, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's fascinating, isn't it? We never think of Romania as being an oil state, but it, it was one of the originals. I mean, this is a place, around a place called Ploest, which is uh, just north of Bucharest. Huge oil fields. I mean, absolutely huge. And if you think about it, at the start of the Second World War, there's a scramble for oil. Everybody knows this is going to be the first big mechanized war, and they all need oil. And Hitler's looking south and thinking, well, my main supplier, given that we don't have any, is Romania. And all the other countries around are thinking, well, they're kind of our main supplier as well. So Romania is suddenly in this position where everybody wants it on side because everybody wants its oil. And in the end, there was very little choice. Romania did side with Nazi Germany and Hitler did take most of their oil. So what was fueling uh, Hitler's march uh, and invasion on the Soviet Union was Romanian oil in huge quantities. Back on the
0: home front, you had Ion Antonescu running a sort of fascist state, a kind of uh, a, a mini Nazi Germany, perhaps. So what became of him and what happened at the end of the Second World War?
1: Yeah, Antonescu's is fascinating, isn't he? Because Antonescu was this kind of very, as you say, very upright, very proper military genius who'd been a hero uh, in the First World War. He was anti-Semitic, but not in the same league as the other fascist organizations at the time. But he realized those currents of opinion in Romania were very strong and you couldn't ignore them. Antonescu basically kicks out uh, the former king. He takes over Romania. The announcement he makes is something like, with great sorrow, I have to announce today, that, um, and with great regret, I have to announce that I am the new dictator of Romania. And that's what he was, unashamedly so. He said they needed a good, strong uh, front man. So it was under Antonescu that they had the alliance with Hitler. They have what is now called the, the Romanian Holocaust. So about a third of a million Jews were killed in Romanian territories as the Romanian army pushed eastwards. And that was all under Antonescu's watch. And Antonescu, it was it, a fascinating character, because some people have tried to give him a sort of renaissance in Romania today, because they would say he was just strong and patriotic, and that he had, had actually been very friendly with Britain and always wanted to side with Britain in the Second World War. But unfortunately, again, because of territorial issues with uh, the Germans, there was no doubt that in the end, they had to join Hitler. And because Otherwise, Hitler would have invaded them anyway. So we have Antonescu there at the forefront, this very sort of so-called dignified character responsible for the deaths of a third of a million Jews. And um, at the end of the war, Antonescu, when the Russians sweep into Romania, Antonescu is, is, is caught and the Russians um, take him back to Moscow where he's kept in a prison for a period of time. And then he's shipped back into Romania and he's put on trial. And um, effectively, he knows at that point that he's going to be executed. There's an extraordinary scene with Antonescu where his execution was filmed, and you can still see it on the internet now. He, he, and some of his closest uh, lieutenants are led through this sort of th- this woodland near Bucharest. Antonescu is wearing a kind of white suit, and he's got a carnation in his collar, and he's got a sort of silk hanky in his pocket, and he's a really he's a real dandy, and he's just said goodbye to his wife and left her a beautiful love note. He stands there in front of what he knows is going to be filmed for posterity. And all the others put masks on their faces, you know, so they they can't see what's about to happen. And uh, Antonescu refuses. He doesn't want any um, eye covering at all. And just as they give the order to shoot, Antonescu, still believing himself the great patriot and the man who could have saved Romania, throws his hat in the air and cheers at the moment of being executed by a volley of bullets. He's, I mean, a fascinating character. You can sort of understand why now there are Romanians who... Get very excited about him and say we need to rehabilitate this guy. But they do put to one side, rather, the fact that he was responsible for terrible atrocities all through the Second World War.
0: And of course, the end of the Antonescu era kind of led into Romania becoming a communist country under the sort of orbit of of Moscow. And that leads us to Ceaușescu and you describing being executed by firing squad, of course reminds us of one of the most striking images of the the wave of revolutions in 1989. But before we get to that, Ceaușescu, of all the um, sort of dictators of Eastern European countries in the kind of post-war era, he sort of seems to be the most reviled. Was he a seriously bad guy or is it just that he was a sort of another person in an impossible situation?
1: Yeah, it's a really fascinating question, isn't it? And I... When I first met my wife, I remember I was very, and still am, very anti-death penalty. And I remember at one point when I'd learned quite a bit more about Ceausescu, I remember saying, if one person deserved to be executed, if I had to support the death penalty for one person in the history of mankind, it was Ceausescu. But I, on reflection, I was rather mistaken. The reason he was reviled is very interesting. We'll come on to that in a second. But actually, he had some extraordinary characteristics. He had an encyclopedic brain. He um, knew a lot of detail, normally about how the Communist Party in Romania operated and about sort of little bylaws and tiny little unimportant detail which most of us would never get our head round. And that's how he came to be leader because all the other members of the the Politburo at the time, needed to look to him for where the rules and regulations were. Nobody else could be bothered looking at them. And Ceausescu kind of inveigled his way into a position where he made himself in great demand with the rest of them. So he's not terribly bright, but, as I say, encyclopedic. Is he evil? Uh, Well, he realised that the only way to control Romania wasn't actually necessarily through um, huge amounts of deaths as it was with Stalin, but more like imprisoning large amounts of people and by having an an absolutely terrifying secret police service called the Securitate, which a lot of us will be uh, familiar with. And it was said that by the end of Ceaușescu, one in three members of the population of Romania were in the Securitate. Now, that's not true, but it's very instructive that people still think that because it was so all-pervasive, it was so terrifying, everybody thought that at least one member of their family was part of the Securitate. So we have Ceaușescu running the securitate, listening in to people's conversations. There was supposedly a bug in every phone in Romania. And this is his method of control. And he, really, his main fault was complete arrogance, his inability to listen to any other opinions. His, he, he did begin to believe, as we say, his own propaganda. And as things went on, he'd been worshipped by so many people by this date, purely because they wanted favours from him and they wanted to make money, they wanted to make capital and they wanted to get promotion, that he began to believe that he was a, basically a demigod and that whatever he said, that he'd come to so, some kind of almost religious epiphany, even though obviously he was irreligious, he believed to the end everything he said was almost godlike. And that put him sort of beyond most East European dictators, that he had this, again, mystical quality where it wasn't just politics. He he thought he was speaking almost to to something beyond human life itself.
0: At the end, in 1989, it was a... Effectively, a sort of violent uprising that brought them down, and and as I, I remembered as a teenager, that the the photo of of their dead bodies just after they'd been shot by the firing squad is one of the most memorable images of that year of revolutions. What was it that sort of broke the camels back?
1: The thing that actually happened was that. Everything else, as you remember, was hotting up all around East Europe. The wall had fallen in Berlin and the mood music was very much that um, East European dictatorships were falling one by one. And Ceausescu made the ridiculous decision uh, that it wasn't going to affect him because he believed that his population loved him. He genuinely believed it. And so and there, there weren't protests in Romania The country had been put down and made so docile by the securitate that there just wasn't any. So he felt that he could probably ride this out. Things began to unfold. Now, this is the controversy. There's a long debate in Romania about whether it was an actual revolution or whether it was a coup d'etat. And um, We all think, so what? Who cares? What's the difference? Well, of course, a revolution would be a popular uprising where everybody came together spontaneously at this great speech he was about to make. And a coup d'etat was something that was there in the background by a small group of individuals who then took over the country, got the people behind them and basically continued the communist legacy for many years to come. And it was that. It was. It was a coup d'etat. And so what actually happened was that Ceausescu called, he decided that he ought to, just because he was a little bit frightened that uh, one of the revolutions might just spill into his own country. So look... I'm going to have this huge outdoor meeting. Let's get everybody down into the center of town. I will give them a great rousing speech. I'll show them how brilliantly popular I am. So he gets the huge crowds out there on, I think it was the 22nd of December, 1989. The Securitate officers are all standing at the front leading the applause as normal. There are banners, the snow in the air, the smoke everywhere from fires and things. It's a really atmospheric scene. And Ceausescu, He's standing there wearing his kind of a long duffel coat with his um, wife standing next to him. What you've got to know about this is it's so mad that they had an introducer who basically comes on board and says, ladies and gentlemen, like a boxing sort of introducer, he says, ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you today Ceausescu, your greatest leader, the leader of the Communist Party, the man who did X, Y and Z. He is Mr. Ceausescu. And they do, and there's very, 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 quiet cheer, almost a groan, but the Securitate at the front all start clapping with great ferocity. And uh, Ceausescu manages to stumble out a couple of sentences, and then there's a, a commotion at the back of the crowd. So there are a couple of gunshots fired, there are shouts, people start, and it's the first time he's ever seen a protest. It's the first time Ceausescu has ever known anybody in his face shout, down with Ceausescu. And, you, and it became one of the great images of those series of revolutions in 89, because you see his face just freezes with his mouth open, gold fishing, and just standing there. And he's halfway through a sentence, which he never finishes. And at that point, when he realizes that things are going against him, one of his aides runs up to him and says something in his ear. Ceausescu is dragged off. Uh, from the palace where he was speaking from the old Communist Party headquarters and um, put into a helicopter and flown to what they think is safety. And the whole escapade of Ceausescu being sort of smuggled out of Bucharest in a helicopter and flown out into the countryside is quite extraordinary because in the end, The helicopter is obviously going to have to land. He believes that he's going to land and be swept up by great supporters in a a provincial town. And he's not. He's he's swept up and arrested and taken into a makeshift tribunal where he and his wife, Eleanor, are put on trial. And as you say, there's this extraordinary scene where, you know, they're sitting there Ineffectively, effectively the courtroom is a children's classroom in a military base. So they're sitting in this kind of farcical situation where they're behind children's desks with an old heater in the corner and people standing around in jeans and T-shirts and it all looks very, very grim. And Ceausescu just keeps shouting, I'm not going to listen to anything you're saying. This is all absolute nonsense. And Eleanor keeps shouting out, arrest them all to her husband. Arrest them all as though she's still in charge. And as soon as that's finished, that court case, they're sentenced to death and they're whisked off outside into the courtyard and they're, they're shot.
0: And then we have Romania's history since the end of the Ceausescu era, which has continued to be turbulent, complicated, full of very, very sort of labyrinthine politics. On some levels, Romania has been very successful. It's, it's joined the EU, it's joined NATO... And of course, you know, its economy has grown, but it is often said that it's the most corrupt country in Europe. It it has a lot of internal challenges that that continue. So at risk of asking an impossible question, why is it so difficult for Romania to sort of shake off these strange and epic ways that that have sort of been with it throughout its history?
1: That is a really difficult question, but let me try and approach it like this. I think that um, the image that we have of Romania, sadly and incorrectly, is of this very uh, sort of poor and struggling nation, whereas, as you'll know now from this interview, in the 20s and 30s, it was this sort of very celebrated, beautiful, eclair kind of atmosphere of of soirees and cocktail parties and it was a very sophisticated place for the arts and for culture and for opera and for music. It was extraordinary. So where did all that go? Well, it was snubbed out with communism. It's come out of Communist Times, gone into the European Union, and is a very upstanding member of the European Union. The younger generation in Romania, those who are younger than 40 and don't remember communism, you know, it's so thriving in, in the arts and culture and brilliant opera and musicals and things. And I think this the future of Romania looks very, very positive.
0: Paul, that feels like a a really good place, that sort of positive note for the future, a really good place to stop. Uh, There is so much more we could talk about, but then the listeners, they should just read your book, Children of the Night, The Strange and Epic Story of Modern Romania, published by Head of Zeus, available, I am sure, in good and even bad bookshops. Uh, Paul, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us and sharing with us your knowledge of this fascinating country.
1: Thank you. It was good to do.
0: Thanks for listening. We have a new Bunker Daily out every Monday to Saturday with our main panel show on Tuesdays and a break for our sibling cast, Oh God, What Now?, on Fridays. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or your favourite app so you never miss an episode. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you can get the podcast early and advert-free, get our splendid merchandise and access to our live Zooms. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. Sorry. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofrenievaich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.